I want you to think with me for just a moment. Many of you as Christians have probably experienced something of what I want to describe to you right now. I've gone through this on a number of occasions in my life. I've been a Christian since February of 1977. I began my career as a pastor in my pastoral ministry in June of 1980, just a few short years after becoming a Christian. I've read the Bible a number of times, through back cover to cover. I've studied many of the books, though not all of them, in great detail. I've taught several of them. Some, word by word. (laughs) As long as I've been a Christian and as well as I know the Bible, having read it, studied it, memorized large portions of it, there are occasions when this thought creeps in. Is it all really true? Is it all really true? Is Christianity really the only way? Did Jesus really raise from the dead? Are my sins really forgiven? Is the Bible true? Is it reliable? Anybody ever have those thoughts? It's almost sacrilegious when you think about it to think those thoughts. But that's part of the reality of being a human being. And so, on the few occasions when I must confront those thoughts, I go through this process of rehearsing once again everything that I've known, everything that I've believed, everything that I've thought, everything that I've seen. I start with the world. The fact that it exists. And I go through that whole dynamic of where did it come from? How did it get here? How do we explain the order? And all of that. And then I look at us, human beings, and I I come to the inescapable conclusion, you don't have to look very far or very hard to know that we have a problem. Mankind has a severe problem. Where does that problem come from? Why do we have a problem? Why is there injustice? Why is there violence? Why is it that relationships are so difficult to maintain? Why is there death? What happens at death? And so I think through all of those questions. And I come to this one question, what is the solution? Is there one solution or are there many solutions? If there are many, how can I know? If there's one, how can I know? And after thinking through all of that and rehearsing all of those questions, wrestling with them all, I come right back to this one final issue. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If we believe that that is a historical event, and in fact, it has been said, that the evidence for its historicity is so overwhelming that you can take it even into our courts of law today, and it will stand the test. The judge, the jury, the prosecuting attorneys would have to come back and say, yes, after examining all the evidence, which is overwhelming, we would have to conclude Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead. And in fact, the history of Christianity is replete with examples of men and women who have sought with great zeal to disprove Christianity. And what do they attack? They attack the resurrection. Because they know that if they can disprove the resurrection, Christianity does not have a leg to stand on. I would submit to you this morning, as we sit in this auditorium, as we reason together, I would submit to you that Christianity is unique among all the world's religions. It is unique among all the philosophies of the world. It is unique among all the systems of thought that have ever been conceived by man. And it is unique by virtue of that one historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead then think about the consequences. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, you and I, as Christians, have no testimony. We have no good news to tell anybody else. Our proclamation is empty and useless. They're just words. They're no different from anybody else's words. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our very faith is in vain. We believe futilely. Our faith is baseless, has no foundation. It's empty. Our faith is in vain. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we are still in our sins. I don't like that thought. We are still guilty. We are still accountable. And we will still be judged. And we will be judged severely. For our offense is great. For there is not a single one of us in this room. I do not mean to be offensive. But there is not a single one of us in this room who has not violated the entire law of God and done it over and over and over. There isn't a single one of us in this room that can stand up and say, I am guiltless. There isn't a single one of us that can stand up in this room and say, I have no sin. We are all guilty. And we're guilty before a holy God. And if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we're still in our sins. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, 
those believers who died before us are lost. And when you die and I die, we'll be lost. We have no hope of salvation from the consequences of sin. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then we Christians, more than anybody else, are to be pitied. People will look at our lives and say, what a waste. What a waste. We who call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, we who are part of the body of Christ, we who of our own volition in our following of Jesus Christ, we who choose to turn the other cheek. What a waste. What a pity. We who choose to go the extra mile without being asked. We who choose to bless those who persecute us. We who choose to pray for our enemies. Indeed, when we find our enemies hungry, we feed them. Our enemies. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, to pour all of our energy, time, resources, giftings, abilities, both immaterial and material, to pour them into what we would call the kingdom of God, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, we are most to be pitied, for we have wasted our life. It's a big joke. But I'm here to proclaim to you, because I've looked at it, I've studied it, I've examined it, I am intelligent, I have two graduate degrees. I'm not a fool. My own eternal existence hangs in the balance. And I am putting all of my, if you'll pardon the pun, eggs in his basket. <laughs> I'm here to proclaim to you that he has risen. He is risen. And your response, when I say He is risen, your response is, He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. All right. I'm glad I have a friendly audience this morning. <laughs> this is the last of four services this morning, and it's gone by just like that. We started Friday night. We had two last night and four this morning. This is the fourth one. I can't hardly believe we're almost done. Do it. It's good to see you. God bless you. God bless you. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you would. Because I want to share with you out of my own life and my own experience, the resurrection matters. Why the resurrection matters. There are many, many reasons. I've just chosen but a few. Those of you who know me know that I could go on for quite some time. However, I've selected those which I think are vital to our understanding. For those of you who are not a Christian, you're not a believer, 
You're here because you promised a family member if they would feed you, you'd come to church with them. <laughs> I urge you to be, to be open, be intellectually honest, listen. For as my, as my life hangs in the balance, as my eternal destiny hangs in the balance, so also does yours. And I ask you to be intellectually open and honest. Reason with me. Follow along. Listen. See if these things aren't true and don't make sense. Why the resurrection matters. First and foremost, the resurrection of Jesus Christ validates His uniqueness. There is nobody else like Jesus Christ. No other person. In terms of his person, his claims, his life, what he's accomplished, what he's taught. Jesus. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 4, Paul writes about Jesus. Not only did he die... According to the scriptures, not only was he buried, but he was raised after the third day, according to the scriptures. In other words, to Israel, you have to understand, the whole Old Testament records the history of Israel from their inception and through their years of existence. And the prophets who've come to them, the law that God had given them, They were God's chosen people. And being such, God gave them some very special promises. He made them a very special people. One of those promises was that he would send a deliverer, one who would save them. One who would deliver them. And he gave them in the Old Testament several ways whereby he would be recognized. So that Israel could see plainly and clearly who the Messiah would be. In all those prophecies, the majority of which Jesus has already fulfilled, the odds of that happening are astronomical. That one person should fulfill all those prophecies that were spoken over the period of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years written down by people separated by those hundreds of years. And yet, the testimony very clearly is that Jesus has fulfilled the majority of those prophecies. There are some still yet remaining to be fulfilled. But I want to share two of them with you. Psalm 16, verse 10. Listen to this. This is David, King David, who wrote the Psalms, the majority of them. He says, O Lord, you will not abandon me to the grave. David had the hope, an ancient Israelite. He had the hope of a resurrection. He had the hope that he would not remain in the grave. Someday he would be resurrected. But he bases that hope on the next phrase in that same verse. He says, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Holy One describes that one that God had promised Israel who would come to deliver them. The Anointed One, the Messiah. You will not allow your Holy One to see decay. Seeing decay or the possibility of it implies death. 
he would not be in the grave long enough for his body to decay. Decay begins after three days. And so we see that Jesus being in the grave three days, death can no longer hold him down, is raised from the dead. Fulfilling this prophecy, the hope of King David and all of Israel. In Isaiah chapter 53, we see another passage speaking of the death and the resurrection to life of a particular person in the history of Israel. And bear in mind again, if you search the whole history of the nation of Israel, no one comes to mind who has fulfilled this prophecy. In fact, the Orthodox Jews today who believe Isaiah and believe the Scriptures, they are still waiting for somebody to come and fulfill this prophecy. Though Jesus fulfilled it plainly. In verse 10 of Isaiah 53, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. A male person described would be crushed and caused to suffer. And though the Lord makes him makes his life a guilt offering, under the Mosaic law there was a system of sacrifices, one being a guilt offering. And a guilt offering was for the guilt of sin, and it was a total sacrifice totally offered up, implying death, giving of a life. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The latter part implies what? Life after death, a resurrection. Verse 11. After the suffering of his soul... He will see the light of life. Apparently this is a death talked about. But after that death, he will see the light of life. There will be a resurrection. Beloved, I would submit to you that those are but two examples of Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament prophecies of the Anointed One. Who else has been raised from the dead? And no one else has fulfilled these prophecies. His rising from the dead substantiates its claims. Jesus made several claims. But two claims in particular. One, that he was the son of man. In other words, he had a human nature. Secondly, that he was also the son of God. He possessed a divine nature. He had a dual nature. No one else has made those claims and could substantiate them. And how are they substantiated? All you have to do is read Jesus' genealogies, his, his, his whole family tree, recorded in two places, in Matthew's Gospel, Luke's Gospel. And you can see very plainly that he had human descendancy. And this is what Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, speaking of Jesus, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David. You could trace his genealogy right up to King David. And through the pure spirit of holiness, he was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. His rising from the dead substantiates his claims. Jesus is unlike any other teacher, any other spiritual leader there has ever been. 
No one said the kind of things he said. No one taught the kind of things he taught. No one did the kind of things he did. He said one thing in particular, which is very exclusive. John 14, 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father but through me. That's pretty exclusive, isn't it? He says, I'm the way for those who are lost. I'm the truth for those who are in error. I'm the life for those who are dying, who have no hope. If you want to come to the Father, you come through me. Because I'll make the way straight. I'll make it possible for you to have a relationship with God. How can we know, how can we trust the things that Jesus said? How many people have, have read the red? How many people have read the red? You know what I'm talking about in the New Testament? What is the red? Jesus' words. How can we trust the red words? How can we read those things and say, yes, this is the truth? How can we know and have confidence in that? I would submit to you the only way that we can have confidence in what he said, that it is in fact the truth, that it is dependable, that it will never let us down, it will never fail us, that his words are immutable, is because he was raised from the dead. What's the connection? The connection very simply is, he said that he would die. He said that he would be in the tomb three days. And he said that he would come back. Did he not? Destroy this temple, he says. And in three days, I'll raise it up again. Well, he'd have to be an absolute fool to say that if he couldn't do it. A liar, a crazy person if he couldn't do it to make that kind of claim. But he made the claim nevertheless. And guess what? He backed it up. He actually rose from the dead. Now, if he could say that, and he could do it, does that have implications for everything else he said? Do you think that everything else he said then, you could look at it as being dependable and reliable? I believe so. I believe so. The resurrection of Jesus, beloved, it validates his uniqueness. Everything he's done, everything he said. The resurrection matters because it confirms the work of Jesus on the cross. What was his work on the cross? That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15.3 Because he rose from the dead, we know that his death has made satisfaction and that God has vindicated him. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He was put to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Picture this, if you will. Let's say that you commit a crime and you're apprehended. You are taken to court. You're prosecuted. You're found guilty. And you are sentenced. You're sentenced to 30 years in prison. You serve the 30 years after the 30 years in prison. What happens to you? Presuming you're still alive. What happens to you? They release you. 
you're free to go, right? You have fulfilled the sentence. You've paid the price for your crime. And so you're released, you're free to go. By analogy, if Jesus, if his sacrifice, if his death on the cross was not sufficient to make the final payment for all of our sins, where would Jesus be today? Still in the grave. Still in the grave. But I would submit to you that his sacrifice was sufficient to pay for all man's sins, efficient for those who trust and believe, and because it is sufficient, God raised him from the dead, Jesus has been released now he's been he's brought back to life. Do you see that? You see why his resurrection is so important? Because now you and I as Christians, believing and hoping and trusting in his death and resurrection, we have peace with God. If Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we don't have peace with God. God's guns of judgment are still trained on us. And it, at the end of our life, at the end of our temporal history... We're gone in in eternity forever lost. But because we have peace with God, we can also know the peace of God. So many people are freaking out all over the place. So many people have no real peace in their life at all. They're afraid, they're anxious, they're fearful. All of that stems from guilt. We know we're guilty. We know we've offended somebody. We know that we have a whole history of wrongdoing. We don't want to face that. If there was just some place that we could go, if there was somebody that could just say, presto, change you, wipe it all clean, give us a brand new clean slate, a fresh start. Oh, how wonderful that would be. We could take all of our dirty laundry, all of our sins, all the evil we've done, all the things that we're ashamed of, and we could go to that person and they could throw it all away. It would all be legitimate. And they could present us with a brand new life. Wouldn't that be wonderful? There is somebody like that. Jesus. We have been justified. God looks at us now just as if we had never sinned. That's what justified means. Just as if we had never sinned. Brand new people. I'm excited about that. The resurrection matters because it also initiates the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 3. This is wonderful. He writes, For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance. He says, This is the most important thing I could pass on. This is the most important thing I could tell anybody. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And that He appeared to Peter and then to the twelve After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have died. 
Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthian church years and years after the resurrection, years after he'd become a Christian. And yet he states that you could go to Jerusalem, even back then you could go to Jerusalem, you could find many of those people who Jesus had appeared to of those 500, and they would tell you personally, they would tell you eyeball to eyeball, I saw him, he spoke to me, he's alive. And you'd have that testimony. He goes on and he says, And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Can you imagine being a disciple of Peter, or James, or John, or one of the other disciples, one of the other apostles? And you would sit at their feet and you'd say, tell me again, tell me again, what did he look like? What did he say? What was it like when you saw him after the resurrection? And they would tell you the stories all over again. Eyewitness accounts. Imagine if you were a disciple of Thomas. Thomas, tell me again? You didn't believe? You wouldn't believe until you could put your hand in his wounds and he appeared to you and he said, Thomas, come here, give me your hand. And he took your hand and he put it in his wounds. Thomas. You see, without the resurrection, there would not be the possibility of these eyewitness accounts and the testimony being passed on from generation after generation after generation. You say, oh yes, but you see, you know how stories go and they get just magnified and magnified every time we tell something about somebody and it grows and grows and grows and grows more gruesome. But the testimony we receive here, right here, is the testimony from the very first century. We have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of manuscripts from those early centuries, and they're all identical. We have more evidence to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, manuscript evidence, than we have today proving that George Washington was alive. And yet we all believe that George Washington was alive, right? Yet there's vastly more evidence to the resurrection. The resurrection matters because it means that Jesus can be known today. He can be known today, not just back 2,000 years. He can be known today. If he rose from the dead, that means he's alive. If he's alive, it means he can be known. If he's available. The question is, is he available to be known? Does he want to be known? And I would submit to you, yes. Yes. He says, none of those whom the Father brings to me will I cast away. Implied in that is relationship. How many of us have assumed things about other people, though we didn't know the person, we assumed that we knew all about them? And that had we had the occasion, or we've had the occasion to actually get to know that particular person. And then we've discovered that all that we believed was really wrong. We have a saying, if you just get to know me, you'd like me, you'd appreciate me, you'd love me. But we stand back and we are very critical, we are very judgmental as people, and we make judgments based on what we see in the news media 
sound bites, little bits of information, biased as all get out. And we think we know all about that person. And we make judgments based on that little bit of information when in fact we don't know that person at all. Where if we were to get to know them, whole different story, true? There are thousands, there are millions upon millions of people who think they know all about Jesus Christ. But if they just got to know Him, whole different story. Up close and personal. He can be known. He wants us to know Him. And He wants us to know His grace and His power in our life. He wants us to know His healing grace and power in our life. The Apostle Paul writes about knowing Christ in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, nothing, nothing, nothing can compare with knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And someone who has met Jesus, someone who knows Jesus, someone who knows the sweet fellowship with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the real fellowship, someone who knows that, echoes Paul's statement. They also say, nothing can compare with knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. And so I would submit to you that the resurrection matters because Jesus can be known today. The resurrection matters also because Jesus is the first fruits of a great harvest to come. He's the first one to be raised from the dead. And all of those who believe in Him will also be part of that resurrection to life. There is a general resurrection. Everybody is going to be raised from the dead. Everybody. But not everybody is going to be raised to eternal life. There will be many who will be raised to eternal punishment and damnation. A horrible thought. Inconceivable. You and I recoil from it. How could possibly God consign people to everlasting damnation and torment and darkness forever and ever and ever? Because we have offended an infinitely merciful God. And because many of us have hardened our hearts and we've rejected His offer of reconciliation and forgiveness. But Jesus is the first fruits. Verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 15, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own turn. Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to Him. And it's only those who have confessed Christ, only those who have put their trust in Him, their hope in Him, because of that event, the resurrection. Their confidence is in Him. When He comes, should you and I die before His coming, when He comes, we will be resurrected and we'll be part of that great crop, that great harvest of righteousness. The resurrection matters because Jesus has robbed, through his resurrection, the last enemy of its fangs. Life is full of enemies, isn't it? 
Lots of opposition, lots of enemies. What's the last and the worst enemy of man? Death. Death itself. Not taxes. Death. A few short days, huh? Death is man's last great enemy. I used to pray when, when we were living under the threat of nuclear annihilation for several years. I used to pray, God, if a bomb falls on L.A., let it fall right here. I want it to explode right on my head. I want to be vaporized in an instant. I don't want to feel it. I don't want the bomb to fall 50 miles from me and the radiation catch up with me and I suffer for years horribly. But now that there's no threat of nuclear, nuclear annihilation, really, or we're not really conscious of it like we used to be, <laughs> it's still going to happen. The Bible says it's going to happen. Now I say, Lord, Lord, if, if I'm going to die, I don't want cancer. I don't want to die a slow, ugly, agonizing, horrible death. I want to go in my sleep quick. I mean, give me a massive coronary, no pain, while I'm sleeping. Why do I say that? I say that because the thought of dying is unpleasant. And though dying is unpleasant to most all of us, the fear of what lies beyond the wall of death, I have no fear. I'm not afraid of what lies beyond it. I just don't want to go through it. And if I have to, I want to go quick. Preferably while I'm witnessing to somebody. (laughs) Preaching, doing something useful. In Hebrews chapter 2, listen to this. Jesus shared in our humanity that through death... He might destroy him who has the power of death, that is, the devil. And free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Beloved, we need not fear it. Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Back again in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 55 and 56. Paul writes, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? And the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know that one of the great tests of any philosophy is what does that philosophy do with death? How does it deal with death? And there are all sorts of things that people come up with. There are people who believe that when you die, that's it. You just go out of existence. There's no more. That means then that this is all there is. Isn't that exciting? (laughs) Like they say in the beer commercial, doesn't get any better than this. (laughs) Oh, yes, it does. Gets much better than this. But there are people who absolutely believe that this is it. This is all there is. That when they die, they go out of existence. Therefore, we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we what? Die. It's all over. What a horrible thought. 
this is it. This is it. You work and you work and you work and you try to put together an education, a life, a family, and you die and that's it. Oh my. That doesn't sound like something that's very attractive, does it? There is no basis for it. It's just a supposition. There are people who believe that when you die, you don't just go out of existence. Rather, you become one with the all-nothingness of the cosmos. Now, I'm obviously reducing it to the ridiculous, but that for a point. There are people who truly believe you just kind of meld in with everything and you become part of the cosmos. That's ridiculous. That's absolutely ridiculous. Why? Because I have an identity. I have a sense of personhood. I long to exist. I scratch and claw to maintain my identity. Don't you? Absolutely. The very thought of my identity melding with the all-nothingness is absurd. It goes against everything that life speaks about and screams about. There are yet other people who believe and believe very firmly that though you don't necessarily go out of existence, though you don't meld with the all-nothingness, that when you die, you get involved, or you're already involved, presumably, in this endless cycle of reincarnation. You come back again. Who in the right mind would ever want to come back and do this again? Who would want to come back and do this again? If you understand the illogic of karma and reincarnation, very simply stated, if you are to evolve to a higher state of existence, then you must first be perfect at this state. If you die still yet imperfect, you don't even stay at the same level, you devolve to a lower level. And if you're involved in an endless cycle of devolvement, at some point, you become an amoeba. <laughs> or less. There are people in the world today that are very careful where they step. <laughs> Not for the reasons we're careful where we step but because they don't want to step on any bitsy living creature because it may be Aunt Mabel. <laughs> now we laugh because to us that's absolutely ludicrous, but yet billions and billions of people believe that. Tragically. Tragically. And I would submit to you that at death we have nothing to fear for there is a life beyond this life. And it is a life fulfilled in every way imaginable. The resurrection of Jesus matters because it gives victory to human beings who trust in him. Again, verses 56 and 57 of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have no victory apart from him. And victory at, at many, many levels. We have victory over the evil influences of men. Aren't there powerful people that bring to bear in our life evil influences that we feel powerless against? 
that lead us to despair and frustration and grief. And yet, with Christ, we have power even against those evil influences. We can know the joy of the Lord. We can have the peace of God in the face of those kinds of situations. Let me read to you from Psalm 44, verse 5. Though through you we push back our enemies. Through you, O Lord, we push back our enemies. And through you, in your name, we trample our enemies. Paul says it another way. He said, if God be for me, who can be against me? What can man do to me? Kill my body. You don't kill my spirit. And you don't break my spirit. For I have victory over your evil influence in my life. We have victory over the evil spiritual forces that are in the heavenly realms. Let me tell you a story. Just this last week, just a couple nights ago, my son, we were getting ready to go to bed, and so we were going to put him to bed, and he went into his room, and he pulls back the covers and gets ready to climb in his bed, and out from beneath the covers scurries this big old spider. It was a big one, because I saw it. He says, Dad! <laughs> We go running into his room just in time to see this spider scurry over the edge of his bed, down the dust ruffle, and underneath the bed. He said, we got to find that. I said, all right, get the flashlight. We got the flashlights. And we looked. We pulled all the stuff out from his bed. We looked. We looked. We couldn't find that spider. He said, Dad, I don't want to sleep in my bed tonight. I said, I can understand that. I said, do you have faith? He said, what do you mean? I said, I have a scripture for you. We try to stand on God's word in our house. Luke chapter 10, verse 19. I said, here's God's word to you, Michael. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. I said, do you believe that? Are you willing to trust God that that spider will not come back and bite you? That God will protect you? He thought for a moment you could see, and you could see, and you can appreciate the struggle. He said, Dad, all right, I'm going to trust God. So after we fluffed all the covers, (laughs) remade the bed, He climbed back in, laid his head down. We prayed together. I checked on him 10 minutes later. He was sound asleep. I woke him up at 6 o'clock the next morning. I said, how are you doing? He said, I'm thankful. (laughs) Beloved, we have the victory. When we trust him, nothing will harm us. We have the victory over our severest afflictions. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Paul says this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble? Anybody here have trouble? How about hardship? Anybody here have hardship? Persecution or famine or nakedness? Or danger or the sword? Things threatening your life? Shall any of these things be able to separate us from the love of Christ? 
from his protection, from the victory he gives us. No, Paul says in verse 37, no, he says, rather in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Apart from Christ, our life is constantly threatened. Apart from Christ, we have no hope. Apart from Christ, we're constantly afraid. But in Christ, trusting him, you begin to know his victory. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. I love the Greek word there, translated more than a conqueror. Literally, it is huper nikomen. Huper meaning super. Nikomen is the same word we get the word Nike from, and I don't mean the shoe. Super Nike missiles. That's the kind of power that is available to us to overcome and to have victory. Paul writes in another place in Ephesians chapter 1, the power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead is available to set us free from the grip of all that is evil. Does that sound like something desirable? Absolutely. Jesus is the answer for the world today. The resurrection matters also because his resurrection body is the pledge and the model of our own resurrection bodies on the last day. This may come as a surprise to some people. You're going to get a brand new body. I'm excited. I can hardly wait. I've got two bad knees, a bad back, and my eyes are going. (laughs) And I can hardly wait to get a brand new body. Some say, what will those bodies be like? They're not going to be like this. (laughs) Will we be recognizable? Absolutely. Wasn't Jesus? John says, when he appears, we shall be like him. What was his body like? It was material. It was physical. He could eat. There's examples after his resurrection. He ate fish with his disciples. And yet he could appear and disappear. Material walls were no problem to him. It's a spiritual body. Not immaterial. A spiritual body. Not limited by our human limitations, not limited by time and space. A spiritual body, a powerful body, a glorified body, he says in this passage in Corinthians. He says in verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. In these bodies, these bodies aren't built for heaven. These bodies cannot stand in the presence of the living God. They'll come apart molecule by molecule. We need a body that's built to be able to withstand and stand indeed in the very presence of the living God who dwells, the Bible says, in unapproachable light. Man, what a body! But his resurrection is the guarantee and the model of our resurrection bodies also on the last day. The resurrection matters Because it is the guarantee of his return. After he rose, after he appeared to his disciples, Luke records, Acts chapter 1 verse 11. As his disciples were surrounding him, he ascended to heaven. And two men appeared, ostensibly two angels. And they said, don't be afraid. The way that you've seen him go up into the air on the clouds, he will return. He's coming back. And the New Testament amply testifies to this. 
1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Doesn't that sound exciting? Man, I want to be around when Jesus comes. I want to be alive because I want to be caught up in the air. Translated, changed in an instant. And so we will be with the Lord forever. That he rose in the past is a pledge that he indeed will come again at the end of time, as he said he would, to bring all of human history to a climax. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28, the writer to the Hebrews says this thing. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And in the great book of Revelation, the very last book of the Bible, the very last chapter 22, three times in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 20, Jesus own words. They're in the red. You can read them yourself. He says, Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. Behold, I am coming soon. His resurrection matters. And lastly, His resurrection matters because indeed it is the basis for all of our Christian activity. Not only the preaching of the good news, not only the telling of other people, but also the demonstrating of the good news in our life through our ministry and through our service to other people who have need. Jesus said, Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he told his disciples, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he also said, feed the hungry. Clothe the naked, welcome the stranger, minister to the sick, and visit the imprisoned. We are to minister to people's spiritual needs and to their physical needs. Listen to what Paul says again in our passage in Corinthians, the very last verse of chapter 15, verse 58. This is a verse you'll want to read. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. What's the work of the Lord that he wants us to give ourselves fully to? Preach the gospel. Tell other people the good news. Proclaim it and minister the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to people who are in need. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Your service, your ministry, your witnessing, no matter how feeble it is in your eyes, no matter how inept you may feel, no matter how ineffective it may seem to be, it is not vain because you do it in the Lord. Beloved, the results are in God's hands. The results are in God's hands. The Bible says... One person sows, another person waters, but God gives the growth. God brings the harvest. 
You and I can't bring about the harvest. There are many Christians who become discouraged in their ministry, in their work, in their prayer, in their testimony, because they don't see the results that they long to see. What does he say? Stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. It's not in vain. Don't quit. Don't give up. Why? Because Jesus has been raised from the dead. It's all true. And your labor in the Lord is not in vain. The tragedy that's come upon the church today is that the church has been reduced to the philosophy of pragmatism. Pragmatism means quite simply, not is it true, not is it a principle upon which I can base my life, but simply does it work? Is it just expedient? And there are far too many people in the church who have fallen prey to the deceptive doctrine of demons, that doctrine of pragmatism, that when they pray and they pray and they don't see anything happen, They succumb to the temptation of thinking prayer doesn't work. Beloved, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your work in the Lord is not in vain. God will bring about the harvest. God will bring about the results Ours is to be what? Obedient and faithful. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. At the end of the age, when we come into his presence, we long to hear him say these words, Well done, thou good and successful servant. No? What is it? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Why am I faithful? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. The results are in his hands. Lord, I trust you. I trust you. He is risen. He is risen. He is risen. Father, thank you that Jesus has been raised from the dead. And thank you that our hope is not vain. Thank you that our faith is not vain. Thank you, Lord, that we have a future. And Lord, that future is with you in glory. How we long to be delivered from these bodies. But Lord, until that time, according to your schedule, we commit our way to being faithful servants, obedient servants, trusting you. Because, in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that his resurrection is the very cornerstone and the basis of our faith. We give you thanks this morning, and we praise your name. Keep your heads bowed for just one more moment. Let's stand and sing the Lord's praises before we dismiss.